If we just polled everybody, there would be ah, such a wide variety of answers. For some of you, you would say it is the most wonderful time of the year. And you would be kind of humming along as you sang, as you said that. For others, you would be bemoaning how commercial this holiday has become. And now this is not what it's all about. And you would have a sense of frustration because you waited in mall traffic yesterday, circling, circling, trying to find your spot. For some of you, you say it's all about family. And I, I think about family at Christmas time. For others of you, you'd say, yeah, I think about family at Christmas time. And that brings its own stressors as people sometimes crunch into tight quarters. Some, some of you are thinking through all of your plans that are between now and eight days away, and you've got lots of things uh, on your mind. And some of you, you're excited because you're going to be able to relax from all those plans, and you don't have to uh, get into the middle of the hustle and bustle of it. For some, this Christmas is going to mean newness of life, someone new to your family, uh, perhaps a, a baby or a marriage, someone's brought into your family that wasn't there before. And uh, for many, it's going to be a recognition of, of a loss of someone or something that mattered very, very much to you, and that person's not here. And I don't know, something about holidays, particularly Christmas, seems to mark off those, and you feel that in a unique way. For some, I know you wish this season would never end, and for some of you, if you could just fast forward to January 2nd. Just get to the new year and get kind of 2017 behind you. It would be okay in your books. The end of the year gives us a time of reflection and uh, maybe, just maybe, apart from everything else I've mentioned, you actually have been able to keep your mind on what really matters this Christmas. Perhaps this Christmas you really have been able to sort through everything that I just mentioned and recognize that there's something that's so much more important than any of that at Christmas and that is the message of what we've sung. That Jesus has come into the world. Perhaps you've been able to retain that focus. It's not always easy. Whether you have been or whether you haven't been able to think about that that much, I'm glad that you made a priority to be here this morning. And for us to take a few moments to open God's word together. Sometimes I've found that with Christmas, because of the familiarity of the story, it's easy to jump in right in the middle of shepherds and angels and wise men. But I believe that that's a lot like looking at a tall, beautiful building and forgetting that there's this massive foundation that the entire structure rests upon. And without that foundation, there would be no building to appreciate and enjoy. So we enter in with with again the story and the basic elements of the story, we enter in there. But this morning, just for a few moments, can we kind of see the foundation that that whole story rests upon? And entering into that story, with only with Mary and Joseph and Bethlehem and manger and angels, would be missing a, missing a vital part of what I believe God has for us this Christmas. I think I've mentioned this before, but I. But Shauna and I have come to enjoy watching this show, and it, uh, it comes up every so often, a uh, portion of a season, and it's Finding Your Roots. It's on PBS. And often they take the, a celebrity or a well-known person, and they, they go back in time. If you've seen the show, they go back in time and trace like their ancestry, and they do all this uh, research and, 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 uh, and really try to unearth who is this person, who were their ancestors, and I enjoy that. It's interesting to me to see, to see so many different angles of, of how this world works, but how different it is when God, when God chooses to say, this is the ancestry of my son. 
It's time to pay attention to that. He wants us to know it. He wants us to understand it. So if you have your Bibles, could you take them and turn to Matthew chapter 1 this morning? Matthew chapter 1. seems like every year we kind of alternate between Luke and Matthew. And this, this year I, I did want us to look at Matthew chapter 1 and see the backstory of the Son of God. Don't let the names intimidate you. Let's read. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asaph. Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim. And Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. That is the backstory of our great salvation. And I wanted us to get oriented to the most important person that has ever lived, And it is worth hearing his backstory and all the names that would have mattered to him in his life. Did you see that? Especially in verse 17, there are these divisions. It talks about 14 generations and three sets of those. And it reminded me sometimes uh, as you're driving down the interstate, you get those, those directional signs and they say so much, so many miles to this city. That's kind of the next major city is off in the distance, and then there's some smaller towns that maybe seven miles away or 12 miles away, but here's the next major one. And and it seems like this is divided up from Abraham to David and from David to the time of a deportation and the deportation to the present during the time of Jesus. They, They function as signs for us, kind of major places where direction is formed. I want us to, we will not walk through the history of every one of these characters, That might take us a while. But I do want us to just highlight a few of them, can we? For some of you, you might be really, really familiar with these stories in the Bible. You may have grown up hearing them in Sunday school. For others of you, you will not be familiar with them. 
A lot of these will be brand new to you. If you're new to the Bible, new to Christianity. For a lot of us, we'll be somewhere in between. Where some of these will sound familiar, some less so. Can we, can we look at some of those verses again? Matthew chooses to start with Abraham. Remember Abraham? He's a man who gets that promise from God that a special group of his descendants will bless the world. But he has to wait for it. He has to wait a long time for it, doesn't he? A long time for it. To even have an ounce of hope that God's going to keep that promise. And in that time of waiting, he gets impatient. And again, we're not going to pull apart all of his story, but he he gets impatient and fathers a child by his wife's servant because of his impatience and because of her, his wife's impatience with this whole promise of God that hasn't seemed to happen yet. Abraham's the one who at one point lies about the identity of his wife. It's my sister. This is Abraham. The beginning point. He eventually has his promised descendant in the midst of all that. What it says regularly, what it says regularly about Abraham is he believes God. He believes God. He makes regular decisions in faith. Not not perfect, but he makes regular decisions in faith. And he hopes beyond hope. This is the beginning of the story of Jesus Christ, as Matthew gives it. Think of Abraham and then think of his son, Isaac. Isaac, the son of Abraham, who ends up living a life of moving. And I, I don't know, there's many things we could think about Isaac, but one of the things that just seems so troubling to me is as a father, he has to deal with the deep rift of, of his sons. And there's such a deep rift between them that at one point, his, his own son will deceive him and trick him. And another, his other twin son will, will seek to murder his own brother. I mean, how, how messed up. This man Isaac has to deal with all of that. And in the midst of that, in the midst of that, he still has strong faith in God. And continues to walk in belief, not perfection, but in belief that God made a promise and God's going to keep that promise. This is... This is an ancestor of your Savior, Jesus Christ. Isaac has a son, Jacob. Jacob ends up, through a manipulative father-in-law, having two wives who happen to be sisters. I can't imagine the complexity of that situation. Jacob fathers children through four women. And he deceives and he claws for things. His family will be one, his home will be a one where it will be so dysfunctional, favorites will be played, grief will be a normal part of their life. Interesting about Jacob, he loses his favorite wife, Rachel, in childbirth of Benjamin. And his dying words, Jacob's dying words indicate that his days had been rough, but still he died with his family together. And Jacob's walk with the Lord, if you were to try to plot it on the line of like when he's really showing faith, there would be times. And where he's really not showing any faith at all, it would plunge and it would just go up and down. This is Jacob. This is, this is an ancestor of Jesus Christ. One of Jacob's sons is named Judah. Judah is one of those that, you know, Jacob's sons make up the 12 tribes of Israel. Judah is one of those tribes, but he's a person Judah ends up fathering a son through his daughter-in-law who is disguised as a prostitute. This is the family history of Jesus Christ. 
Judah is also the one who makes a sacrificial decision to offer himself if he needs to so that his father wouldn't have to be grieved in his old age. This is the story. This is the story of Jesus Christ. And so as Matthew seeks to write down those names that we would know them, that we would remember them, these are names that he wants us to remember. He doesn't hide their backstories. He puts them up front. We aren't, by the time we get to Judah, we aren't even out of the first book of the Bible. And we already have a mess, don't we? And we have people walking in in trust and hope in the Lord, don't we? Let me pause and make sure that we apply this to our own lives and our own souls. I don't know where you are in the story of your life. I don't know what has gone right for you. And I don't know what has gone terribly wrong for you. I don't know all of your stories. I don't know what you would change and what you are so thankful for. I don't know where your family has left you generation after generation, a heritage of pain, and where they're actually your, your family has left you a heritage of courage and faithfulness to God and devotion to God. But my guess is that if your family is anything like my family, it's fairly mixed. There are things that are... We really don't talk about every family dinner. There's other things we do. There's some things we just shake our head at and other things that we say thank you, Lord, for. And and none of us would be here without many of those things falling into place as they fell. And it wasn't fate, it was God's design. And it's all often, often complicated. Maybe it's not as dramatic as any of the stories I just read or kind of highlighted some of the parts of those stories. Maybe it's not. But most families are pretty complicated when you begin to unwind the details. And I wonder if any of those... Any of those individuals we just mentioned stop Abraham one day in December and ask him, where's life at this point for you, Abraham? Does God at work in your life? Maybe depending on the year, he'd go, I don't know. Or maybe depending on the year, he'd go, let me tell you about the biggest answer to prayer in my life. If any one of those moments we would stop and isolate We might get a very mixed picture, but over the course of his life, we see absolutely God was working all things together for good, for his glory. And I have to ask, if I I stopped and said, do you see God at work in your life this morning? Maybe some of you would say, I don't really see it. If you asked me five years ago, I would have seen it, but not now. I would encourage you, just as Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah We're waiting on this promise of the Lord. God knows where you are. God has not forgotten where you are. And he's at work. Could you believe and would you believe today that God is writing a story that involves first and foremost his love and his faithfulness? And he's taking even all of your sin and all of other sin against you and taking all that grief and is writing this story of redemption and grace all over your life. Well, that is what he's doing. That is our God. That is the story of Jesus Christ. There's another group uh, of names even in this section. And I want us to look at uh, a few different ones that I'm guessing you're not as familiar with. So in this next group, there's Perez and Ram and Aminadab and Hezron and Nashan and Salmon. If we were to go to the nursery or our our children's area, we would find some Jacobs and some Isaacs and even even a Judah. We don't find any of these names. I I haven't researched the roles recently, but I'm guessing. I'm guessing we're not going to find any Aminadabs in there this morning. These are obscure, aren't they? As a matter of fact, we just don't know much about many of these individuals. 
Matthew hadn't recorded them, if their name hadn't been written in history, they would have lived, they would have died, and we would have known, we might not have even known who they were if Matthew hadn't recorded them through the work of the Holy Spirit. I wonder if maybe we can identify with some of these individuals more than we can the Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah, the more familiar ones. Because I would imagine a a lot of us in the room feel like we never have been and never really will be part of any main story. When history kind of, when, when it's all said and done, 100 years from now, we're not necessarily really confident. Lots of people are going to remember our name and our accomplishments. How many years did you work at that place that's now out of business? And people drive by and it's already been flattened and mowed down. I mean, this is where a lot of us live. And sure, we want to make a difference in the world. But sometimes we feel much more like one of these, not a mover or a shaker. And even if we were, we realize that the world doesn't, doesn't remember a lot of people. Time passes you by. I remember reading a particular writer when I was in high school. And he gave this, you know, story of kind of a backstory. But I remember the last line. It was, just remember that life has a way of trashing your trophies. And and that's true. Sometimes Sean and I will be talking about a famous person from, you know, ancient days like the 90s or 2000s or something. And we'll be telling this, you know, this person that surely everybody's heard of them. And our kids will go, who's that again? Like, how don't you know who that is? How do you not know? Has it so quickly been forgotten, this person that, like, the whole world revolved around them? This is the way life works. The people have obscurity, and we're right to take note of them, because what we look up and see is every one of those were image bearers of God. God knew their name. God knew the numbers in their head. The number of the hairs in their head. Insignificant people play a part of a pretty amazing drama. And God is using a lot of us insignificant people. And he's writing a story that really doesn't matter for eternity. When Israel was moving up in the world, there were some others, not, not so much obscure people, but more, more pillars. Kind of... Some of the fortunes turned, especially there's a man in the genealogy named Boaz. And Boaz would have been rescued, would have been remembered as like a a pillar of that society. But wait, I mean, Boaz, it tells us that his mom is Rahab, a woman. Genealogies of that day rarely included women. And here we have Rahab. And Rahab was, her occupation as a prostitute. And interestingly enough, in a genealogy about this Jewish Messiah, she's a Gentile. And there it is right there. This is Jesus' story. This is the ancestors of Jesus Christ. The story of Boaz and Ruth is a story of grace and joy and peace and redemption. God looked favorably on both of them and And Boaz, there's this tight connection to Boaz lived in Bethlehem. Just file that away. Because another significant figure is going to come out of Bethlehem. You go a few more generations down and you realize another another person in Bethlehem is David. 
And certainly David gets much attention in the Bible, as he should. But when David begins, the, when we're introduced to him in 1 Samuel 16, he's a very insignificant character, right? He's, he's a shepherd. He's the one that they all forget. Ah, oh, surely he couldn't be king. He couldn't be God's anointed. And yet anointed he was. He was anointed to be king of Israel. And, and what that meant for David is as he was anointed to be king uh, uh, of Israel, he was targeted by the current king. And he would always have this complicated relationship, wouldn't he, with, with King Saul. Because King Saul knew there was another one coming who would take his place. You know, it was only more complicated because of the friendship David had with King Saul's son, Jonathan. David knows he's been anointed by God, but he has to wait. He has to endure, doesn't he? He's in caves saying, God, what are you doing? He's in caves writing things like, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. David waits. And then he, then he does become king. And yet in a, in a, in a moment of foolishness and a moment of sin, he commits adultery and then tries to cover it up. And before the days of investigative journalism, God doesn't need that. God exposes his sin to his prophet Nathan. Nathan comes and confronts David. David is an interesting person, isn't he? He has this deep heart for the Lord and, and he repents deeply. My sin is ever before me. It's always right in front of my face, David would say. And he he receives forgiveness from the Lord, but that entire episode is going to haunt him as his own house divides, as his children turn against each other, and eventually even one of them, Absalom, turns on him. This is the story of our Messiah, Jesus Christ. This is all in his backstory. David has a complicated legacy. He's a man after God's own heart, and his writings will give us in Psalms. I mean, who hasn't read Psalms? Who hasn't heard, the Lord is my shepherd, I I, I lack nothing, I shall not want. Who's not heard that and felt ministered to and encouraged by that? This is the, the legacy of David. It gives us a vibrant, you know, path to a vibrant relationship with God, but, but it's complicated. And in a very dramatic moment, God makes a, David a promise of an eternal kingdom. says, David, you'll have a descendant that will rule the world. So we can start at the ground level and think of Joseph and Mary and shepherds, angels, Bethlehem, but there's so much more involved, isn't there? You come to that first set of 14 generations that Matthew wants us to see kind of, kind of organized, and we've seen a story of blessing and sin and hope and promises and pain, obscurity, outsiders, and order and pursuit of God. I'm guessing that's a lot like our stories as well. There's, a, there's more names, and as you read more and more names, you read like, there are people that have, in some moments, have attention to God in his word, and then in the next moment, there's an, a, lack, a lack of attention to it, a willingness to go it alone there. There are people that, in, in the, the names that we'll read, are that, that prayer is their first reflex because it's a time of desperation, and then there's some that prayer is barely an afterthought. Let's, let's throw one up there. Maybe God can help. There's, there's people where the pursuit of God is the first priority, and then there's some in this, in this list of names where pursuit of God is mixed with other other things that seem really important at the time. Well, there's names in here where there's full-scale cover-up of sin and there's judgment that comes because of that and there's others, full-scale confession and repentance of sin and forgiveness. On again, off again. I mean, names like Solomon, wise in areas and foolish, and stupid in other areas. Hard for God, it seems like at times and then not so much at other times. 
Rehoboam, one of those characters whose pride and foolishness cost him and the entire family. You ever had one of those in your family? Their pride and their foolishness cost a lot of people, a lot of things. Then you have Jehoshaphat and passionate about religious reforms, but compromised in other ways. And Uzziah, lots of success and even blessing of the Lord. And then pride led him to think, I'm above the directions of the Lord. There's all these names. There's these lists of names that we've read. There's Hezekiah and Josiah, reform and struggle. When you get to kind of the last set of names, right before Jesus comes, there's not many people there that made a lot of history in Israel. Mostly it's a story of a nation in decline. No longer a political powerhouse. Their military doesn't matter. As a matter of fact, the 400 years right before Jesus, they're known as the 400 silent years. Because it seemed as if God just went dark. Wasn't talking to his people. Oh, I mean, people were being born. People were living and dying. And yet God sees where every one of those names and everybody who lived with them, God sees every one of those. So why would I take, why would I take time on a busy Sunday right before Christmas and walk through a dozen names or so? Why would I want those on your radar? A much more important question than that is, why would God use the important first pages of the New Covenant, the New Testament? Why would he use those pages to, to write out the, the names of Jesus' ancestors? I think it's because you read name after name and story after story and you, get, you kind of soak in those stories and you begin wondering, what will God do about all of this? What will God do about all of this? What will God do about a world of spiritual recklessness about the things of the Lord? What will God do with this nation that decides to turn their back on him when he's made a covenant with them? What will God do with all the other nations that decide they're going to pursue other gods? What will God do about that? What will God do with a world where children break the heart of their parents and where parents don't shepherd the hearts of their kids that well? What will God do about that? What will God do with a world that sees generation after generation filled with innate selfishness, my way, me first. A world filled with rebellion where we say, I don't need any authority, I'll do it my way. And we say that even to God. What will God do with that? What will God do with a world where sexual sin is pervasive and it brings guilt and it brings shame and it harms people for generations? What will God do with that kind of world? What will God do with a world of disease and death where it seems like people are gone from our presence forever and we only have memories? A world where it seems like, where it seems like at times death has the final ultimate word and it's painful. What will God do with that world? What will God do with a world where we seem at the mercy of individuals and nations who want to show their power, a world that's constantly at war and no peace is to be found? What will God do? I think all of that is introduced 14 generations here, another 14 here, another 14 here. What will God do? What God will do is God will send his son as the Messiah. God will send Christ, another name for Messiah, and he'll be a person of hope. And Jesus will live in that very world 
Kelly called our attention to it earlier. He's, he's Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus will live in that world and he will love that world. Jesus will see sin and its effects, but he will never sin. He'll live perfectly. Jesus will go to funerals. Jesus will meet people who have diseases and their body is wasting away. Jesus will see hypocrisy and Jesus will encourage true faith. What is God going to do about it? God's going to come. He's going to come in Jesus Christ. That's what God will do about it. And yet he won't be received by everyone. Jesus wasn't. He was rejected by religious leaders and by the world powers of the time. He died as an enemy of the state, but something much deeper is going on. He not only died as an enemy of the state, but he died saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What was going on there? He was dying for the sin of the world. He was paying for these sins. Yeah, the sins of all those guys, but also the sins of all, all of us guys as well. He was dying for our sins, paying for those, paying him full for those. He was buried, and on the third day, it was impossible for death to hold him, and he rose from the dead in victory. In this world that speaks so much of Satan's influence, and every one of these men died. This world that speaks of death and Satan and hell and the grave and sin and judgment, Jesus rose from the dead victorious over. And then it said he's just the firstborn of many sons and daughters who will come along after him. Just the firstborn of those who will be reconciled children of God. Those who will trust in his work for their own lives. This is what God does. This is what God does in the person of Jesus Christ. I don't know what you're thinking about at Christmas time. But I know what we ought to be thinking about. I know what we ought to be thinking about as we come to the Lord's table this morning. As we take the bread and the cup, we're signifying the death of Christ was for us. We're sharing in what he has done. But make no mistake, we, we aren't adding to what he has done. He's done it all. It's interesting when you go to a meal, often like common courtesy is to ask, can I bring anything? Can I bring anything? When we come to this meal, that's not the question we ask. What we sing is Jesus paid it all. He's already brought everything to the table. We just come at his invitation. And we remember his body broken for us. And we remember his blood shed for us. And we remember that he did that to create a new world that will not know sin and death and hell and pain and the grave. And we say, just as that world was longing for Messiah to come the first time, we say, even so come, Lord Jesus. Can I ask you to bow your head, close your eyes, and maybe take this time to pray. I'm going to ask our deacons to come prepare to service. As we, remember, as we remember the Lord's death this morning, take these moments to reflect and worship and praise God. Maybe take these moments to read through some of these names and remember the stories that you've been taught and rejoice that in the midst of all of that, Jesus has come.